Amen. God is good. So why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer, and let's ask Jesus to fill our heart with that same courage as we worship him on the Sabbath. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the testimony of your people. As imperfect as they may be, we just thank you, Lord, for courageous men and women who will not compromise. God, please make us that faithful. Please make us faithful, Lord, to you. Give us obedience. We pray that you would write the law upon our hearts, Lord, because we cannot put it there. Only you can. And as we open up the scripture, we pray and ask God for the greatest of all teachers and preachers, the Holy Spirit, to guide us to all truth, as it says in John 16. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Father, I have one more thing, Lord. I sense that we need to have a moment of confession. Lord Jesus, we pray and ask that you would forgive the sins of your people as Daniel prayed. That you would cleanse the hearts of Israel, Lord. And we pray that nothing would stand in the way of receiving the blessings that you have for us. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do you guys know what's so special about today? What's so special about today? It is communion Sabbath. Can you say amen to that? And Jesus has desire, is desiring to spend this communion time with you. Now, I know a lot of people, as soon as they hear about communion, it's like, as soon as the sermon's done, I am out of here. But folks, I want you to understand something. You are shooting yourself in the foot. Because through communion, God wants to invigorate your faith. He wants to restore you. He wants to cleanse you. And through communion, he does so many things imperceptible that you won't even realize it till later on. And folks, do not miss the communion service. So right after the sermon, we'll dismiss for foot washing. And then after foot washing, we'll partake of the Lord's bread and of the juice as well. Please stay to the very end. I promise you this, that you will be blessed by God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right. Now, the name of the sermon is called Delicious Grape Juice, just because I don't have the very best titles in the world. But we're going to be studying something very interesting. Take your Bible and let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And if you're there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Matthew chapter 19. We will be doing a Bible study, so make sure you have your Bibles out. You will receive special blessings. And by the way, if you want to have a very special blessing in church, you know where you need to sit? I call this the blessed row right here, the first two rows. Right here. So if you're looking for a place to sit, there's plenty of room right next to the preacher, right over here, okay? These people get A's. So, all right. We're going to Matthew chapter 19. Are we all there? Please say amen. Okay, let's start with verse 1. Now it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Bible is relaying to us a context. There's this crowd that's apparently following Jesus. The reason why they're following Jesus is because he's healing them, and he's teaching them wonderful things about the kingdom of heaven. Can you say amen to that? Well, let's continue. And the Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The Pharisees noticed this group of people surrounding Jesus, and they decide at that very moment they're going to test Jesus. So they pose a question which has been a controversy in the Jewish religion at that time. And by the way, there was two rabbinic schools of thought, and these individuals were rabbis who helped influence the Jewish culture at that time. 
And the debate was about divorce. One of these individuals' name was Hillel, and he said that you can divorce your wife for any reason, including even if she cooks very bad food. The other individual, Shammai, was somebody who was also somebody who uh, influenced the thinking in regards to divorce. He said, you have no right to divorce your wife except for adultery. And so you have these two schools of thoughts that were just reigning over all of Judaism, and they were not only influencing the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were influencing all of culture. And so when it came down to this question of divorce, they knew it was a topic of, of controversy, so they decide to, to talk to Jesus and present to him a question that if he was to take a side in this question, he could lose the influence of the people. So they asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Any reason to divorce your wife? Now you're thinking to yourself in the back of your head, Anel, what does this have to do with communion? Now you just pay attention. We've learned when it comes to the preaching, you wait till the very end and all somehow comes back together, right? So these Pharisees ask a question about divorce. Now, when somebody comes up to you and they ask you a question about divorce very randomly, you can often guess there is an issue behind the issue, a question behind the question. So, for example, you have your friend right here, and just say in the midst of the workday, he turns to you and he says, can I ask you a question? And you said yes. And he says, what does the Bible say about divorce? Now, immediately you think to yourself, well, I can answer his question, but also you begin to think, maybe this individual is struggling with something when it comes to his marriage. People just don't ask questions, right, like that. He, you can tell there is an issue in society right now at that time when it comes to divorce. So pay attention to this. What Jesus attempts to do is to correct their uh, concepts of divorce by correcting their concepts about marriage. Because incorrect views of marriage lead to incorrect views of divorce. And by the way, incorrect views of marriage lead to incorrect views of dating, which leads to incorrect views of the type of person you should be marrying. It's all sequential and it's all related. So the real question has to do with what exactly is marriage? And Jesus knows that divorce isn't the real issue. It's rather a fruit of a misconception that they had. They were abusing what Moses had allowed and permitted. So they were divorcing their wives for many different reasons. In fact, you go to certain Middle Eastern cultures today, and you can still have that same type of permission to divorce your wife. You don't like her. You don't like what she cooks. You can just walk over to the court and just get a divorce that very same day. It's not even expensive. You can walk out. However, if your wife wants to divorce you, that takes several days. That's exactly right. So the same Eastern culture that does exist now also existed towards Jesus' time. Incorrect views of marriage lead to incorrect views of divorce. And so the question is posed to Jesus, Jesus, please tell us about divorce. And what Jesus does is something extraordinary. He doesn't just deal with the fruit, he goes right for the root. You know what's interesting about Jesus? Jesus did not just answer uh, questions, he questioned answers the answers of that day. He questioned them. And this is what Jesus does when it comes to marriage. So everybody continue with this. You're going to see what Jesus does. It's something so extraordinary. Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 4. 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, quote, made them what? Male and female, comma. First thing to notice about what Jesus is saying when it comes to marriage, he quotes from what book in the Bible? Genesis. Does anybody know what part of Genesis he quotes from? The first chapter of Genesis. You're going to actually see the context by which Jesus quotes from. Everyone take your Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now when Jesus is trying to correct their views about divorce, he attempts to correct their views about marriage. And I love what Ellen White says. It is the purpose of the gospel to restore marriage to its purity and its beauty. Can you say amen to that? So what Jesus does... Now here's another question I want to ask you actually. Why does Jesus choose to allude to the book of Genesis in trying to correct their views of marriage? Raise your hand if you think you know the answer. Don't worry. I'll try not to embarrass you a lot. Why does Jesus allude? Yes. Okay, what's so special about creation? What's so special about the first few chapters about Genesis? Okay, raise your hand. I don't know. Yes, Jim. He knows all about us? Okay, but what's so special about Genesis 1 and 2? Well, what's so special about the first marriage? Yes. Well, sequentially, it was... Who said that word? That's... Sorry, you must have said that earlier. I just probably didn't hear you. But here's the thing to pay attention to. Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 1, and you will see he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Why? Because in trying to develop a good standard for them, he appeals to perfection. He's like, let me tell you about what God's original intent was. Let me refer you to the pre-fallen world. So he really raises the standard high. And so he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Are we all there? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. But also keep your finger on Matthew chapter 19. You may think to yourself, I wish he had said that earlier when I switched there. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. And by the way, the difference between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 is the entire creation. Genesis chapter 2 is the best part of creation to God. Genesis chapter 1, are we all there? I'm going to point you to one of the most unusual verses or one of the most unusual structures in all the Bible when it comes to the verse. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. I shared this in the Sabbath school not too long ago. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Actually, let's skip up to verse 26. Then God said, let us make what? Man in our own image. Do you understand what God just said right there? Yes or no? Yeah, it's pretty simple, right? Makes sense. Sounds like ordinary English. Let's keep going. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now pay attention to verse 27. You see this ordinary narrative English just going out throughout the entire uh, chapter, Genesis chapter 1, but wait till you get to verse 27 because all of a sudden it's like you start messing up. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Do people talk like that today, yes or no? Does that sound like ordinary English to you, yes or no? So God created them in his own image, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. It sounds very what? Redundant, repetitive. When you read all of Genesis chapter 1, what's so interesting is that it just flows all the way until you get to verse 27 when all of a sudden you're like, and you're like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And so what you begin to do is sort of just skip over the verse. But here's something that Moses understood that we who read in English don't understand. And that is, verse 27 is something what Hebrew scholars call paradigmatic parallelism. In other words, it's Hebrew poetry. So when God is trying to describe the creation of man, he doesn't just use ordinary language. He inspires Moses to actually write in poetry. 
Now let me ask you another question. What does poetry mean? Why would someone give poetry to somebody else? To communicate what? To bring out emotion, creativity. So when God is talking about the creation of man, he doesn't use ordinary language. He uses the language of love. Anybody here ever give a poem to somebody else? Raise your hand. All the men will keep their hands down. Ed, why don't you raise your hand a little bit higher? I think that's what you were like. You were like this. Okay, very good. Could you come up here? No, you don't need to come up here. Here's the thing. You guys, don't miss this point. When it comes to the creation of man, God is very careful to make sure Moses writes this in the most beautiful language ever. Why? Because when God created man, it was a very emotional experience for God. Do you know how special you are to God? He created you with his own hand. Can you say amen? Amen to that? I said amen to that. Amen? Now, but let's go back to this. Let's rewind. Now, so we were going to Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus is trying to lift the standard of marriage, the first thing he says, don't you know that he who made them made them male and female? He quotes that, and the Pharisees would have known he was quoting from Genesis chapter 1. They would have known, and you know what they would have thought when it comes to marriage after Jesus said that? Marriage is about, what does Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 say about male and female? What was the purpose of their union? It wasn't just to become one, it was to do what? Not just to procreate, it was to do what? Reflect the image of God. So you know what Jesus does? He's elevating marriage and he says, you want to know what marriage is? Marriage is about producing the picture of God on earth. Can you imagine those Pharisees at that moment probably think and just like kick their feet, kind of just like walk away, some of them? Because what Jesus did, he cleared the dust off marriage. And he says, let me just tell you about marriage. It's like a camera. You say, there's cameras during Jesus' time? It's like a Polaroid camera. Do you know what a Polaroid camera does? Anybody know what a Polaroid camera does? You take a picture. Some of you guys are too young for this, but I remember this. You, take the, you have this big, giant machine, and you hold it up, and you press the button, and you hear the... And then... And out comes this film-like paper, and you just... And what happens is an image begins to be produced. You know what marriage is? Marriage is like a camera. It's the agency by which a picture of God is produced. And you know what Satan has sought to destroy? He has sought to destroy this vehicle by which the picture of God can be revealed throughout the entire earth. And you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with communion? The first thing Jesus says about marriage is, number one, it is its very purpose is that it's supposed to produce the image or picture of God on earth. Now watch the second thing Jesus says when it comes to marriage. Matthew 19, verse 5. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his what? Father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one what? Flesh. Where is Jesus quoting from now? He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Remember, he's trying to clear the dust off marriage and union. He's saying this. He's saying God's special union, his special institution, marriage on earth. He's saying, don't you know that he made them male and female? And then he says, and don't you know, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, why does Jesus choose to quote from what happens after Adam sees his wife in Genesis chapter 2? in trying to elevate what marriage is. I'm not afraid of silence. I'm afraid of time, though. I'm not afraid of silence. Well, think about what Jesus just said. For this reason, a man 
shall leave his what? In other words, he's leaving one family and shall be joined to his wife, and now he is starting what? Another family. You know what Jesus is saying about marriage? He says the purpose of marriage is family. Now, he's completely elevating marriage to these Pharisees. Their minds are probably being blown away, and they're like, well, that's not what we thought about marriage. We thought it was just about getting some. And when you're done, you kick them out. That's exactly what they think, and that's exactly what we think today's culture, if not worse. And what Jesus is doing, he is completely clearing off the dust. He is elevating marriage to something far more beautiful and holy than the Pharisees ever conceived of. First thing he says is that marriage is about producing the image of God on earth. The second thing he says is that marriage is about producing family. Now you may think to yourself, well, I can't have kids. You don't have to have kids to have a family. It could be you and your spouse, but you still have a family. Amen? Now watch the third thing Jesus says when it comes to marriage. Still wondering to yourself, what does this have to do with communion? Verse 6. So then they are no longer two, but one what? Flesh. Therefore what God has... What's that next word? Join together, let no man what? Separate. Let no man separate. You know what Jesus is saying about marriage? He says, nobody, nobody on earth should interfere in your marriage. Nobody. Not your mother-in-law, not your father-in-law, not your brother, not your sister, not somebody else who's not supposed to be part of that relationship should interfere with marriage. Now watch how the, watch how the Pharisees respond. Watch how the Pharisees respond. very interesting. Verse 7, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? They're recording from the book of Numbers. They said Moses allowed for divorce. Actually what Moses said, because if there was uncleanness found in her, you can divorce. But they took it to a whole new, uh, another extreme. But let's continue. Watch how Jesus addresses what they say. Verse 8, He said to them, Moses, because of the what? Hardness of your hearts permitted you to, what's that next word? divorce your wife, your wives, but from the beginning it was not what? Do you see what Jesus is again doing? He is again elevating marriage by alluding or referencing it to what? Perfection. He says, this was never God's intention for divorce to ever take place. He's really laying it down. Now watch what happens next. Verse 8, verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits what? Adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits what? Now, I'm going to ask a question right now. Out of all the things that you think would be potential qualifiers for divorce, why does Jesus label sexual immorality as the key thing? In fact, the only thing that would permit divorce in the sight of God. How about if you're not, good, you're not happy with her cooking? It destroys faith? Okay. Any other reason? There's a lot of things that could destroy faith, Royce. It destroys family. There's a, there's a lot of things that can destroy families. How about you over there in the corner? You with your hand up. Okay, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to share your emotions with another person other than your spouse and not commit adultery? Can you share deep things with your mom and not commit adultery, yes or no? Absolutely. Can you share uh, uh, dreams with your sister? and not commit adultery, yes or no? But is one part of the relationship that is reserved solely between you and your spouse, and that is what? The physical relationship. It's the most intimate, sacred part of the relationship because it's the only thing that is reserved between you 
and your spouse. Nothing else. And so what Jesus says is, look, if you want to find out what is the only reason why divorce is permissible to remarry somebody else, it has to do with what? Sexual immorality. Now let me ask you a question. Who was asking these questions to begin with? Pharisees. Does anybody know who Mary Magdalene is? Who is Mary Magdalene? Sister of Lazarus, she was what? Yeah, Jesus cast out seven demons. She was a prostitute, right? Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus in John chapter 8 was about to, uh, he was going into the temple and the people were about to stone her, the Pharisees, and say, this woman was caught in adultery, and what should we do? Moses commands that we stone her. What did Jesus begin to write on the ground? Their very sins. Now, what were their very sins? Their very sins that put Mary in that position. And by the way, Ellen White even makes this very clear that those Pharisees had essentially used Mary as a thing around that temple. So this is very interesting. When Jesus tells them that you cannot divorce your wife except for sexual immorality, who would probably have the only real reason to divorce? Their wives. And you can just imagine, as soon as they say that, if Jesus says that, they probably put their head down, and you don't hear from them for the rest of the chapter. Just walk away. Because he knew, they knew he was talking to them. They absolutely knew he was referring to them. Now again, you're asking, what does this have to do with communion? Let's keep going. Hopefully it'll come up. Do you like the study of God's word, yes or no? God's word is deep, amen? Let's keep going. Verse 10, I love his, the response of his disciples. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to what? What did Jesus just say in regards to this particular case? That the disciples said, well, it's good for us probably not to be married then. What did he just say? If what's the case? Sexual immorality. Jesus makes it very clear this is the only reason, the only permissible thing when it comes to divorce. And you know what those disciples say? Because of how they were inundated with the cultural beliefs, they said, well, if that's the case, it's probably good for us not to marry. You know why? It kind of alludes, and this is more speculation than anything, probably some of those disciples were struggling with that very same thing. They were afraid of marriage. Why? Because it would require commitment. Lord, have mercy. It required faithfulness. Oh, please give us mercy, Lord. Those disciples were so blasted by the culture that when it came to marriage, it frightened them. The idea of having to be faithful to somebody else, it scared them. It scared them to the point where it says, if that's the case, it's better for us not to marry. I mean, these disciples were so twisted. Now imagine this, okay? I want you to think about kids in America today. Let's take a five-year-old kid. Five-year-old kid. He grows up, watches a lot of TV, sees so many different views when it comes to marriage, sees so many concepts of what love is. He gets older, his parents get a divorce. Adultery was involved. And then he gets to the public high school system where all sorts of things are being spoken to him and told to him and taught to him. And by the time he gets into like college, he starts seeing local activists and all of a sudden, as he gets older and older, I want you to add, tell me, what do you think is going to be this young man's concept of what love is? It's going to be so distorted. It's going to be absolutely distorted. You ask this man, you say, well, can you tell me what love is? And he will probably give you a very twisted concept of what love is. You know why that's very important? Because Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 24 that one of the signs of the very last days, in other words, the, one of the very last things, would be that the love of many would grow what? Cold. You know what Jesus is saying about love at the very end of time? 
It would be so diminished that the majority would not be able to recognize it. The love of many will grow cold. Love, what love is, will be so diminished on earth. That will be one of the signs of the end times. But watch what happens next. Still asking, what does this have to do with communion? Let's keep going. Verse 11. But he said to them, all cannot what? Accept this what? But only those to whom it has been given. You know, being a single person, I always tremble when I read the next few verses. Tremble. Let's keep going. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. Now let me ask you a question. Are there people who were born with physical disabilities and cannot be married? Yes or no? Absolutely. Those people carry a cross. A very big cross. Jesus makes it very clear. There are some people, because of the way they were born, because of the chaos nature of what sin is and how this entire world has fallen into to this randomness and what seems just like this sin-polluted, contaminated world, there are some people who were born with disabilities that would prevent them from getting married. Now watch the second thing. And there are some, there are eunuchs who were made what? Eunuchs by men. This would include Daniel and his three friends, right? Jeremiah talks about how uh, there would, Nebuchadnezzar would take some of the men from Judah and turn them into eunuchs. That's why the prince of eunuchs, Ashpenaz, was taking care of Daniel and his three friends. Daniel and his three friends were eunuchs. So what took place? Now what's the third reason? And there are eunuchs who have made themselves what? Eunuchs. For the kingdom of heaven's sake. You know what Jesus makes very clear? He says, and let me tell you about something. There are actually eunuchs who have made themselves eunuch. Now let me ask you a question. The first eunuch, or the category of eunuchs, was that by choice, yes or no? No. The second eunuch, was that by choice, yes or no? Heaven forbid, right? No. The third eunuch, is that by choice, yes or no? Jesus makes it very clear. When it comes to marriage, there are some, because they choose to be faithful to heaven and choose to be faithful to God, that they have chosen to live a celibate lifestyle. Now, this is where I start getting into something very sensitive, and I need to speak on this subject before it becomes illegal. And it will be. There are some people who are struggling with a homosexual disposition. There are individuals who are not attracted to the opposite sex. They are attracted to the same sex. There are individuals who you know, and the culture is growing more and more, so it's becoming more acceptable. Also, in, in fact, we think it's more inherited. It's probably more cultivated than it actually is that. And what we are seeing is a phenomenon that is taking place, and this phenomenon has to do with gay marriage. Now, I'm not here to denounce homosexuals. I know there are probably people in this congregation who are struggling with that. I can guarantee it. But I am here to say this. There are many people who are wrestling with that. And they have a big burden to bear, but they need to be faithful to Christ for the kingdom of heaven's sake. They absolutely need to be faithful. And regardless of what culture tells you, be faithful to God. God will bless you. Amen? And more and more, we're going to come across this. More and more, we're going to be seeing this. More and more, it's going to be taking place. But we need to present the perfect picture of love. God absolutely 100% hates sin. Can you say amen to that? But God 100% absolutely loves sinners. Amen? You know, one time I came across this one woman, and she spoke to me, and she asked me about homosexuality. She said, is this a sin? And I kind of gulped at that very moment. I want to be sensitive, right? And at that moment, I sent up a prayer. I said, Lord, give me the right words to say. 
And I said, I'm just going to be very frank with you. But I spoke in a very loving and gentle tone with her. And I said, the Bible is very clear about this issue. The Bible calls it as it is, a sin. But he absolutely, 100% loves sinners, just like you. God hates the sin of adultery, but he loves adulterers. And one's nature doesn't justify the, the actions of that nature or the, the wants or desires of that nature. There are married people and the spouse may have a desire to commit adultery, but just because he has that desire or feel that's part of his nature doesn't justify it. In fact, Paul dealt with this very subject in his own day. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You're going to see something very interesting that I think it's very important to, to pay attention to because it lets us know that the Bible is a very relevant textbook for our generation. Can you say amen to that? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You're going to see something very remarkable. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 9. Are we all there? Page 1102 in your seminar Bibles. Okay? Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the what? Kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviles, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now watch what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. Do you know what Paul just said? Paul just said something so powerful. He says, look, there are certain types of people who have really embraced this type of uh, sinful lifestyle, but he makes it very clear. And he says, but I know who I'm talking to. Some of you guys were like this. Paul makes it very clear. In his generation, there were individuals who were struggling with the exact same problems that our generation is struggling with. But then watch what he says next. It's so beautiful. But you were what? Washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Can you say amen to that? There is victory. Now I'm going to make this also very clear. There are some people who have that disposition who may never ever be attracted to the opposite sex. But because of their faithfulness to God, they will have to live a life that is very single. But the Lord will give grace. Amen? God will give grace. You know, someone brought up the question one time, well, are people born this way, or did they just develop this way? Did, did, were they, did, was this inherited? Was this cultivated? And that's the debate right now. But let me just tell you something. Here's the answer. You ready for this? Here is the answer right here, 100%. It doesn't matter. You know, Jesus came across one individual, and the disciples asked the same question. Was this man born this way, or did he become this way? And you know what Jesus says? doesn't matter. I can change him for my glory. Someone asks you that same question, doesn't matter. God can change your heart. God can 100% change hearts. Can you say amen to that? And that is the greatest miracle of Christianity. Amen? Still wondering to yourself, what does this have to do with communion? Folks, as we near more and more the very end of time, love itself is going to be completely shattered. There's going to be so many distortions, and people today don't even know what love is. You know why this is very interesting? We just quoted from Matthew chapter 24. But do you know what Satan's accusations were in heaven? Satan's accusations in heaven were this. God, your law cannot be kept. Your government is invalid. It does not work. The law of God does not work. But do you know what the law of God is? It is the law of love. You know what Satan was ultimately questioning in heaven? The principle of unselfishness, which is what? Love. 
He was questioning what love is. You know why he was questioning what love is? Because he had a problem with the one whose name was love. And so he questioned what love is, the very concept of what unselfishness is. We angels need to be autonomous. And you know what took place? The exile took place. Those angels left. They attacked on earth. And Satan has tried to reproduce this same idea that there is no such thing as love. It does not exist. It's whatever you want to do and whatever you want to call it, but love itself does not exist on earth. He has challenged the government of God since the very beginning, and he's brought the same challenge on earth. And that's why at the very end of time, he's going to do his best to attack everything that love is, this principle of unselfishness. And that's why Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold at the very end. But I love what Ellen White says, what is needed at this time are the last rays, the last merciful rays of light, a revelation of God's character of God. doesn't simply want to proclaim love. He wants love to actually be actual on earth. He wants love to be actual on earth. And folks, this is very foreign to us. The Holy Spirit, if we pray, will implant this love in us. It is not natural. You cannot produce it. You can try. It's not going to be in you. Heaven's love cannot be in you on your own. You have to pray. Even Ellen White says that the Holy Spirit will implant love that is of a divine origin. Its origin is not on earth, but God will implant it. I was praying on Thursday morning, and I was asking God, the Holy Spirit, I said, Lord, implant this love in my heart. And it was so interesting. For a few moments, it was like, it was just, I had this experience, and I was trying to understand this, this unselfishness, and I was really feeling unselfishness for one of the first times in my life. And you know what I thought for a second later? That is so foreign to my name. Heaven is foreign to us. Love is foreign to us. It is absolutely 100% foreign to our natures. It is, we are so used to being selfish that we don't even recognize our selfishness anymore. But God can implant that love in our hearts. And you know what we're doing when we partake of the bread and of the juice? We are taking in God's expression of love symbolically. We are partaking of what Christ did on that cross, which was the greatest manifestation of what love is. And as we're partaking of Jesus' broken body and of his blood, we are inculcating a symbolic expression of what love is. And you know what Jesus gets in exchange? He gets dirty water. He gets a dirty towel. He gets an empty cup. But do you know what we get in exchange? Clean feet. Delicious grape juice. An expression of his. Can you say amen to that? Folks, do not, do not walk away from this communion time. Jesus has been desirous to have this time. And when you're getting your foot washed, your feet washed. I want you to picture Jesus himself washing your feet because he washed all our feet 2,000 years. And when you're partaking of that juice, pause and reflect upon what Jesus has done. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, there is much to talk about. But God, thank you so much that unholy beings like us again can dwell in the presence of holiness. And Lord, as we partake of the foot washing this may be our first time, it may be our 90th time, but either way, Lord, as we partake of the foot washing, God, may it not be this light moment, this trifling experience, something of circumstance, but may it be something, Lord, where our hearts are coming into contact with the infinite God of the universe.
And God, as we partake of the bread and the juice, Lord, we pray that you would begin to implant that holy love that is not in our hearts, Lord. You would implant it in our hearts. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.